This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning, February 25th, 2023. And we continue to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Our positivity rate has fortunately been slowly dropping down, and it was 5.8% on Thursday. And what's interesting is that this conversion over to normalcy continues. For some people, it's a lot more radical in the sense that people feel that this pandemic is over. It's not over. Pandemics don't just stop. It takes years, actually, for them to stop. So just because we wish for it to be over doesn't mean it's over. Now, that doesn't mean it hasn't evolved and gotten better, because obviously we have a bunch of tools under our own control, those being masks, vaccine, Paxlovid, if necessary. So we have tools to help us. The interesting thing is people don't take advantage of those tools. But, I mean, let's think about it. So you're saying it's not over. Well, on Thursday, 429 people died in the United States with COVID-related illnesses. Now, I could hear the boo birds already saying those people would have died anyway. And they just happened to have COVID. COVID was a factor in their death. Let's not kid ourselves. Now, we know that people who have chronic illnesses and persistent chronic illnesses are more prone to dying and losing their lives from COVID. But by the same token, you know, now we're in year four of this and we're still losing 429 people, between 400 and 450 people a day. Now to put that in perspective, the number one cause of death from cancer is lung cancer. And we typically lose an average of 350 people dying a day in the United States from lung cancer. Now, no one is sitting back and saying, well, that's okay. That's an acceptable number. I don't, I don't, I don't think COVID's a problem. I don't think lung cancer is a problem. Of course not. And we're losing up to to 100 more people every day from something that plays a factor. Now, if someone has lung cancer and dies of a heart attack, right? I mean, so there are always associated factors here. But the point being, we don't find the number of deaths each day from lung cancer acceptable. So why should we find it acceptable that 429 people died on Thursday? And clearly, as I said, Things are getting better. We have some tools to fight back. And the real point is using mass vaccination, 
are the key tools. It's amazing to me is how many people don't take advantage of it. Now, uh, the rules with masks have lightened up to some degree, and, and probably rightfully so. And people have to start using their own judgment as to when to wear a mask, when not to wear a mask. And there are a variety of For me, when uh, it's important is when I'm around a lot of people. If I get into an elevator, I put a mask on. I don't know how many other people are getting in. Actually, if, I, if I'm there alone, I don't necessarily have to have it on. But if I'm going to be a crowd of people, if I'm going to a religious service, good chance I'm putting it on. If I'm going into a store and there, uh, you know, to get a cup of coffee and there's nobody else in the store other than the, uh, the staff there, I may not put it on. So, again, you have to use that sense, but you have to have that mask ready in your back pocket. You know, I ask a lot of people, patients who come in who are not vaccinated, and uh, I ask them not really why, but really is there a medical reason that they're not vaccinated? Because sometimes when I'm getting a history from a patient, they don't always tell you all their medical problems. Um, and, and because it's, it's, you know, we're taxing their memory, they're nervous in the office, Often, even though we have an electronic record, it's not the most complete. So I will ask people if there's a medical reason why they're not vaccinated. And sometimes, you know, you'll hear that they have an immunosuppressive illness or, uh, you know, they're advised not to for several reasons or whatever. The one thing I find curious as to how many people say, well, I don't need it. I'm uh, healthy. I never get sick. And I think those folks have lost sight of one of the reasons, one of the principal reasons we get vaccinated is that you do it because you're part of a community. You're part of a family. So the last thing you want to do is be the person who's spreading it, even though you may not be symptomatic. You may be mildly symptomatic. Hey, you're healthy as a horse, right? So you may have some symptoms and be spreading it. So the idea that you only do it for the reason that you're trying, you don't need that protection for yourself, isn't necessarily a totally valid one. Um, and I, I think that those folks need to take that under, because a lot of times people just say, I just never really thought of it. Hard to believe, but they never really thought of it. One thing we talk about on this show a lot is longevity, right? I mean, that's that may be the principal reason most people listen to this program is because they want to live healthier and live longer. And we're losing that battle. In a recent study uh, published by uh, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, uh, Dr. Sharfstein actually has been a guest on our program. He is an, uh, a pediatrician, also an epidemiologist and public health specialist at Johns Hopkins University. And in his study, it it clearly shows that since 2014, from 2014 to 2021, we have lost 2.8 years of life on average. Some more, some less, but 2.8. Now, right away, the first thing we're thinking is, well, sure, COVID. And COVID did play a big role in that. But before COVID in 2019, 
those numbers were already going down. And they've continued to go down despite the number of cases of COVID going down. And the principal reasons that they looked at a lot have to do with suicide, drug overdose, and gun-related deaths. So it's like we have a, a roadmap. You know, the last time we increased our longevity was in the 1990s. I think it was 1999 was the last time we added years to our life. We've So we've held steady, and now since 2014 have started to drop. I'm going to try and get Dr. Sharfstein on the show uh, again to talk about this because I think it's a fascinating study, and I think it's something that interests most people and most of our listeners. This day in medicine, February 25th, 1628, Dr. John Baptiste Morgagni was born. He was an Italian physician, a pathologist, and an anatomist. Uh, he's really the father of the anatomical concept of disease. I, I can't begin to list all the things and glands and things that are named after Dr. Morgagni. Uh, he really was a leader and a father in this field. When I went to medical school in Italy, uh, one of the principal courses you took were anatomic pathology. And this was a hallmark and a course that you took that was an area of pride among the professors, to be a professor of anatomic pathology. And his big concept was that diseases, this is in 1628 he was, he was born, but in his lifetime, his belief was diseases arise from, a, from definite changes in some organ of the body, and that these changes are constant for any particular disease. When you think about it, that's something we take for granted these days. But clearly, at that time, it was momentous that a change occurred in an organ that was consistent with the disease and consistent throughout the course of that disease. Anyhow, we remember Dr. Morgagni today. We're going to take a break, and they're going to be back with my guest. My guest today is Dr. Lauren Ganey. Dr. Ganey is Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Connecticut. We have a lot of topics to discuss with her. So if you have questions about orthopedic surgery, and specifically her area of expertise, foot and ankle surgery, you can reach me live here at info at alessimd.com. Send me over your question. Many people do. And if I can get to it live on the air, we will. If you have a question later on, I will get it to her and get an answer to you. So we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Lauren Ganey. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest uh, for this program, Dr. Lauren Ganey. Uh, Dr. Ganey is an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Connecticut. Uh, she is uh, the orthopedic surgery residency director and director of the newly established orthopedic foot and ankle surgery fellowship. She is also my practice partner at the University of Connecticut. And uh, Lauren, welcome to the program. And thanks for having me. I should say welcome back, as you were on uh, <laughs> some time ago, and um, we always really want to get you back on because there's so much of interest in orthopedic surgery from our listeners. 
But can you talk a little bit about your training and the training orthopedic surgeons go through? Sure. So I did my training, uh, my medical school training at UConn, um, which is four years. And essentially that training, as you know, is is pretty standard throughout the country, regardless of what practice and what specialty you go into. Um, then I stayed at UConn for my residency, which was five years, um, where I came out of there trained in all of orthopedic surgery from trauma to joint replacements, foot and ankle surgery, which I specialize in now. We do oncology, hand, sports, um, essentially run the gamut of all orthopedic surgery. Um, and then I spent a year down in Baltimore at Mercy Medical Center where I um, subspecialized for a year in foot and ankle surgery and then came back to UConn. You know, Lauren, when people hear foot and ankle surgery, a lot of times they think of podiatry. Um, so can you tell us the distinction between podiatry and foot and ankle orthopedic surgery? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think that it's something that's very confusing as some, you know, as a patient that's, you know, doesn't really know where to find care. And, you know, one of the big distinctions um, is that, you know, podiatrists are doctors of podiatric medicine. So they are not medical doctors in the same way in the sense that they don't go uh, to medical school. Um, they also are very specifically trained in foot and ankle. And a lot of it is actually dependent on the state. So in the state of Connecticut, um, all podiatrists can do surgery and manage um, any issues with toes or the midfoot, things like hammer toes, bunions, um, some arthritis of the foot, and some are specialty trained to do surgery in the ankle. Um, now, specifically in Connecticut right now, podiatrists are not allowed to do ankle replacements um, and some more complex um, fractures of the ankle. Um, so that's a little bit different than myself who did five years of orthopedics um, and so, for example, you know, when I'm on call, I do hip fractures. I do all sorts of um, things other than of the foot and ankle, and that's just something that I specialize in. Um, there's certainly a lot of overlap in what we do, um, but I would say the training is, is a bit different. Um, and typically, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, we feel that, you know, more complicated uh, pathology typically is, um, you know, it's a good place to start would be an orthopedic foot and ankle surgeon. Lauren, I want to talk to you in your role as orthopedic program director for the residency. And, um, you know, I couldn't help but notice uh, with the boot camp this year that I had the pleasure of uh, working with with my daughter, Catherine, that uh, of the five new residents, three are women. Um, how have things changed in orthopedic surgery? Um, and, and not just in terms of um, seeing more women in underrepresented groups, but um, their qualifications and things like that. How has that all evolved? Yeah, so that's a great question. And while we are making improvements, uh, particularly in women and underrepresented minorities, it's interesting because orthopedics is still way behind other fields. And even when you look at the other surgical subspecialties, general surgery, uh, ear, nose, and throat, um, you see that the increase in, in women and underrepresented minorities is rising pretty rapidly. And while we're doing better, we still are not rising at the same rate. So, you know, it's been taking a lot of effort. We were super excited to match those three very qualified women um, who are, are currently in our intern class. But it's still, it's still a challenge and it's still something um, that we continue to work on. You know, as far as 
the qualifications of an orthopedic surgeon. It's funny because, you know, historically, and if you, you know, the, the, um, I think the reputation of orthopedic surgeons, you know, back historically was that, you know, they're just these big guys that aren't so smart. And it's funny how that has changed. It's become so competitive that, you know, you look at these applicants and they're just unbelievable and their CVs are as good as me or any of my partners. And the challenge of getting in has become so competitive that the quality of these applicants is just, it's unbelievable. And it's humbling every time we we look through the group of applicants to our program. Lauren, what's the attraction, uh, in other words, for people who want to get into it? It's always been a highly, highly demand and under high demand to get into orthopedic surgery. And what do you think uh, really uh, doesn't attract women about it? Is it the lifestyle? Um, uh, what are the features to orthopedic surgery that either attract or sort of detractors? Yeah. So, I mean, I think specific to women, you know, you could say that it's the lifestyle and certainly, you know, there's nothing easy about surgery. There's nothing easy about residency when you're working 80 hours and there's a a mentality to it, you know, for good or bad, you know, there's this idea that, you know, you go to work every day, no matter if you're sick, you wait to get sent home, you work through a lot of things. Um, and, you know, I think that there's certainly a, um, an expectation that you come to work every day and you work as hard as you can. And that is hard, you know, if somebody wants to have a family or try to balance that. But that being said, as you know, general surgery is rising more rapidly. And so you could argue that lifestyle is the same, whether you're an orthopedic surgeon or a general surgeon. So I think, I think that the, the bigger issue we've had with recruiting women is really twofold. And we've discovered this as we've done more research. Um, the first being there's a lack of female mentors. Um, and so, you know, there's this idea that if you see it, you can be it. And so we're trying to get more women on the forefront um, acting as mentors to younger women to prove that you can have a family, you can be a successful surgeon, but also a successful um, parent. And so, you know, those are that's one thing that, that we're working to improve. And I think that the other idea is that, you know, unfortunately, you hear this all the time where young women interested in orthopedics talk to some senior um, colleagues, whether in a different specialty or maybe just some that, you know, are a little further along in practice. And there's this idea that you have to be physically very strong. You have to be some sort of brute to be able to do it. And that women just don't have the capability, which is, it, which is just very false. So I think that's part of the problem that we face, you know, particular to orthopedics as far as recruiting women. Well, I think that sums it up, but I'm glad to see that's changing and catching up with other specialties, uh, certainly in neurology. Uh, I think we're at 50% now, women uh, who uh, specialize in uh, neurology. Um, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest today, Dr. Lauren Ganey. And I have a bunch of questions here that we'll get to that people have sent over uh, to talk with Dr. Ganey about. We're talking about orthopedic surgery today. So if you have questions about anything with to do with, uh, to do with orthopedic surgery or specifically foot and ankle surgery, um, in the second half, we're going to, and she's going to walk us through a typical patient, uh, which is something I think we're all kind of interested in. So any questions, you can get them over to info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Whoa, I know we were 
We're back on Healthy Lines. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I'm with my guest today, Dr. Maureen Ganey, Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Connecticut. If you wish to schedule an appointment with Dr. Ganey, uh, the phone number there is 844-388-2666. Lauren, welcome back. Uh, Thank you. I'd like to go through a typical patient. So when someone presents to you after foot and ankle trauma from any variety of circumstances, a fall or whatever, um, what's the process f- from your standpoint uh, that they go through? Sure. So, I mean, I think part of it depends on whether they've already been evaluated somewhere. Many people, you know, whether it's a weekend or an evening, have some sort of acute event um, and will often have gone to an urgent care center, um, maybe have had some imaging taken, some x-rays. And so typically what we do is we, you know, don't want to give anyone any more radiation than needed. So if they have imaging with them, we'll review them. If they don't, then we will um, obtain some x-rays. What we find is that if possible, x-rays of people standing is actually much more helpful for us. Um, to evaluate things like the stability of the injury um, and any signs of arthritis that's there. Um, of course, some people are in some pain and so can't can't tolerate that. But if we if able to, we prefer those those types of imaging. Um, and then we look at you know where the injury is, whether it's soft tissue, whether there's a broken bone, um, to try to determine you know what the next next best course of treatment is. And it can range from surgery to, you know, wearing a boot, to really wearing whatever shoes comfortable, understanding that may be some time before the swelling and the soreness get better. So let's talk about that. Um, boots and casts. So lately, I mean, and, and many of us old timers are used to, you break a bone, you've got a cast on. But more and more we're seeing people use boots instead. Um, what's the logic or what's the reasoning behind that transition? So initially we used to think that the more immobile you could keep something, the better in order to get things to heal. And what we've discovered is that bad things can happen to joints that are immobile, tendons, ligaments, joints, they're intended to move. And so when you lock something up and sometimes you have to, but if you put something in a boot or if you put something in a cast, excuse me, and really immobilize it, then while the fracture may heal, in the end what happens is you get a stiff joint, which is very painful, um, and things don't heal quite the same way. Your body is really quite remarkable in the way that it heals. So, again, whether it's bone or ligament or tendon, your body heals it in response to the load that it needs. And so there is a very delicate balance between having somebody weight bear or move an injury early enough that the healing progresses in the way that we want it to, to try to normalize, you know, how that heals and make it organized collagen, which we know is much stronger, while at the same time immobilizing and giving it the rest that it needs to heal. So it's essentially what I always, always tell people is that I want to move you as soon, the earliest I can that's safe. And, you know, even when it comes to my fractures, I say, listen, if your bone doesn't heal, I can fix that. If you have a stiff joint, I can't fix that. And stiff joints are painful joints. Um, Going back to the typical patient, I know in neurology, everybody wants some advanced imaging. Um, Do you find the same thing? Is there always a need to 
do you do CT or MRI uh, very often before uh, doing surgery on, on an ankle injury? So we, the, one of the things I like best about the foot and ankle is that everything is, is palpable or it's something that you can feel. So when I examine a foot, for example, or an ankle, I can feel every tendon. I can feel every joint. I can feel every ligament. So I should be able to know based on my exam what's injured. Um, and to me, advanced imaging is only necessary if I can't make a diagnosis or if it's going to change how I treat somebody. So, for example, when somebody comes in with a really nasty ankle sprain and the x-rays are negative, so I know there's no fracture, whether the ligament's completely torn, partially torn, sprained, stretched, in the end, they're all going to physical therapy and they're all getting a boot. So if it doesn't change what I'm going to do, then I don't find that it's necessary. Um, and so if I then send that patient, for example, to physical therapy and, you know, they get to a point where, yeah, I'm about... 80 or 70% better, but I hit this plateau and I just can't progress. That's the point at which I get an MRI to see, okay, what's going on there? Why is this patient not acting the same way as I would expect them to? So for me, advanced imaging is either pre-surgical, just so I know exactly what I'm, I'm going to see when I uh, get in there, or if something just isn't progressing the way I would expect it to. Okay. Uh, one of the other questions that came in uh, was when – do you remove plates and screws when or if do you remove plates and screws so um you know again we use uh hardware a lot more in orthopedic surgery over the course of the past 40 years or so but uh someone asked you know how do you decide or do you even take out plates and screws and why that's a great question you know the way i try to explain you know when we put plates or screws are or nails, or whatever the hardware we use, your body still has to heal it. So any hardware we put in is just to line things up better while your body heals. So putting a plate in doesn't speed the recovery. It just lines the bone up so it heals where we want it to. What that means is that once the bone is healed, that plate is no longer necessary. It's just sitting there because your body did the healing. Um, and so everything is, is where it's supposed to be, and the plate there is just extra. Now, who wants more surgery that they don't need? Not many people. And so unless there's a reason to take it out, we leave it in. So is it necessary? No. But why go back in and do another surgery with the potential for any sort of complication if you don't have to? Now, there are certain situations where we feel that leaving the hardware in could be detrimental. So there are some areas in the body where we actually will put screws across joints to hold things together. And the way I explain hardware is if you take a paper clip and you bend it enough time, that paper clip will break. Well, all metal is the same. So if you put a strain across a, a screw, for example, enough times, then that screw will eventually break. So there are certain areas where we put screws across joints that we do want to remove them because we don't want them to break in a, in a way that that's not controlled. And so the times we take hardware out is if it's in a place that we worry it's going to break, or every once in a while, you know, screws can be prominent or they can be in a place that's irritating to somebody and then we can take them out. So essentially, you know, the reasons to take them out is if it bothers somebody, you know, for example, for ankle fractures where we put the plate, sometimes that's where a shoe could rub. And so if it's irritating, we could take it out. Um, it's not typically, um, people always ask, you know, in the cold, does it hurt? It doesn't. And so t temperature changes shouldn't change it. But if somebody has a prominent plate or screw we can take it out for comfort 
or if it's in a place that we worry about it breaking, um, then we take it out. How often would you say you take it out in the foot and ankle, in foot and ankle surgery? So for unplanned situations, so something called a Liz Frank joint, um, anyone that's seen sports or um, football, you'll hear that often. So that's a place where we plan to take the screws out. As far as unplanned, meaning that it's just bothersome to people when we take it out, I'd say one or two percent of the time, maybe. There are certain areas where they tend to be more prominent than others. And, you know, to your um, what you mentioned before about, you know, we're plating more and more things, we're putting more and more hardware in. With that advance, we've actually developed much, uh, many more implants very specific to certain areas. So what that means is that we have plates just for the top of the foot, which is a really thin area where there's not much um, soft tissue coverage. But because you have plates that have been built for that, they're very, very low profile. The screws sit very flat into the plate to try to avoid, you know, the, the pain or discomfort from them. So with time and as we get better at this, we've been able to design hardware that's not painful. That's very interesting, especially for the top of the foot. I wouldn't even think of, of something like that. Uh, here's a question I had. Uh, when I was in Haiti during the earthquake in, in 2010, um, obviously there were a lot of traumatic injuries. People were working fast. They used a lot of external fixators. Now, I'd, I'd seen them used before, but, but rarely. And in this case, um, at the time of the earthquake and subsequent to that, our surgeons were just trying to remove these external fixators. Can you talk a little bit about what is an external fixator and why do you use that? Sure. So an external fixator is it's a way to control and realign um, fractures in a, in a place where you, you don't feel comfortable putting something internal or when, you know, something like a cast just isn't enough to control it. So there are times where somebody has a really bad, you know, ankle fracture or a fracture, you know, of the tibia, the shin bone by the ankle, um, where a cast just isn't enough or a splint just isn't enough to hold it where we want to. And so we need some more control of it. At the same time, there are sometimes situations where it's just not safe to put plates or screws in right at the beginning. Um, and examples of that would be something called an open fracture. So if, if there's communication of the bone to the outside world, that's a very high rate, um, a risk of infection. And what we know is that hardware is very, very prone to getting infected. And so we don't want to put a plate, for example, into an open wound, because then if that plate gets infected, then that can be a, a really big disaster. And so an external fixator would allow you to, to get some stability of the fracture, but without the infection risk that putting hardware in would, would call for. It's also something called damage control orthopedic. So putting an external fixator on is very quick. So, you know, we see this all the time, you know, at our level one trauma centers where you have a patient that is in a very high level, whether it's a car accident or, or just a, a bad trauma, and they're unstable, but they're also bleeding, actually. Bones bleed quite a bit, so they can bleed from the fracture. And so we want to stabilize them but we want to get them to the ICU or get them to wherever they need to be to, to really save their lives. And so we need to do something quickly that helps stabilize the fracture um, to get them what they need. Do you use them a lot in, in foot and ankle? We do use them um, in situations um, where there's risk of infection. And, you know, think about feet, they tend to be a little bit higher risk of infection than other parts of the body. 
Um, so there are situations where patients have diabetes and soft bones, something called Charcot arthropathy, um, where you have destruction of the joints. Um, the bone quality isn't good to hold screws or they have open wounds. Um, and in that case, a fixator could be helpful or in that trauma situation um, where somebody, whether they're too swollen to have surgery um, or for whatever reason, you know, you, you're concerned about infection. I'm going to go back a little bit and talk a little bit about something we talked about at the time of your last interview, which was several years ago. And we talked about ankle joint replacements. Now, we've all heard, I mean, joint replacements have become very common. Let's face it, hip replacements, knee replacements. Now we're doing reverse shoulder replacements. But at that time, your feeling was that ankle joint replacement weren't quite there yet. And I believe the reason you gave is because of it is so there's so much direct pressure put on the ankle joint that it made it a difficult joint to replace. And then recently you and I had a conversation and you were talking about ankle replacements and it seems like they have become more common. Can you talk about that evolution over the last several years in ankle joint replacements? Yeah, so it's actually been really exciting. And, you know, it's another thing I love about foot and ankle surgery is that we're still in its infancy, you know, unlike some other um, specialties where they've really figured it out, you know, we're still learning and we're learning from our colleagues. And I think this is one of the areas that really um, highlights that. And our ankle replacements, the quality of them and the technology have improved very rapidly. And I would say when I started my practice nine years ago, I would say I was for, for ankle arthritis, probably about 20% of the time I was doing an ankle replacement and 80% of the time I was doing an ankle fusion. And I would say I'm nearly the reverse of that at this point, you know, just um, nine years later. And so I think what we're learning is we're learning as we do more research and we have in more and more of these, what we're learning is who does well with them and who we shouldn't do it in. So part of it is patient selection. You know, if you put a total ankle replacement in everybody, well, some people aren't going to do so well. And what we've what we've learned is who are those people and who does well and who doesn't, so we can kind of select the people that that we expect are going to do better. Um, but also, the t technology has really improved, and the longer term data we have, um, the more we recognize that you know they are doing better than they used to do. You know, in the 70s and the 80s, they were failing pretty quickly. And the challenge is, is that once you take bone out to put an ankle replacement in, you're in a position where now you have all this bone loss and, you know, now you have to figure out what to do next. And so, you know, we don't want to put an ankle replacement in somebody that, that it's not going to work for. So we've spent a lot of time, there's been a lot of research done, um, a lot of improvements in our technology, and, and it's exciting to see um, more and more of these being done and getting people back to the lifestyle they want. So following up on that, is uh, the, the common reason I would think uh, for doing an ankle replacement is arthritis. Um, are there certain arthritic conditions um, that make it better to do uh, a, an ankle replacement? Or are there other conditions? I can only think of arthritis or something of that nature. What, what, what would yeah. commonly come up that, in a patient who needs one? Yeah. So, I mean, it is for ankle arthritis. The, the difference between the ankle and, you know, the other joints you mentioned, the hip and the knee in particular, is that typically hip and knee arthritis are just wear and tear. You know, somebody is 
70 years old, 80 years old, and they've had, you know, life and they've, they've walked and they've done exciting things on their joints and eventually they've worn down. In ankles, about 70 or 80% of the time, it's actually from trauma. So it's not just a wear and tear arthritis. It's, I had a bad accident and I had injury to the cartilage and now this has turned into an arthritic joint. The challenge with that is, is those aren't always your 70, 80 year olds. Those are your 30 year olds, your 40 year olds. And what's hard about that is that, you know, when I, when I quote data to my patients, I tell them that 80% of total ankles are still in place in 10 years. So if you're 30, that means by the time you're 40, your ankle replacement may have failed. And it's, essentially, it's like a set of tires. It only has so many rotations to it before they're going to wear out. And so those are the patients we know um, are not good candidates for an ankle replacement um, because it really just because of their age. And so we're doing them, you know, I used to say over 60. Now I'm saying over 50, you know, is who I typically will do an ankle replacement. And the other thing is that if you've had an injury, it's not uncommon to have an ankle that just didn't heal straight. So if you have a essentially a crooked ankle, then to back to my tire analogy, if you put your tires back on crooked, they're going to wear out quicker. And so we spend a lot of time um, what we call balancing the joint and making sure that everything is straightened out um, before we put an ankle replacement in, in order to give it as much length of use as we can. Warren, I had a question just come in uh, by email, uh, and this one's from David. Uh, do you generally advise teenagers to go through with bunion surgery or not? We've had two opinions. A podiatrist recommended surgery, an orthopedic surgeon did not. What, what do you think so about bunion surgery it, in a teenager? So, first of all, when it comes to bunion surgery, the only time to do surgery is if it hurts. What I advise my patients and what I talk to my residents about as well is that if somebody comes in with a painless bunion, if I do surgery, I can only make them worse, right? What if they have a small wound problem? What if they have a little bit of numbness? Well, if your heart's so bad you can't walk and you have a little bit of numbness, well, that's okay. If you start out perfect and I gave you some numbness, I just made you worse. And so we always, you know, when we're talking to patients and when we're deciding to do surgery, it's always an attempt to make somebody better and more functional. So if you are functioning at 100%, there's no benefit to doing surgery. That being said, if you have a painful bunion, then I think that it's really about quality of life. And that's what I tell people. If there are things that you are unable to do because of whether it's a bunion, whether it's arthritis, whatever it is, if there are things you cannot do or um, things that you avoid because of this, then it's time to consider doing surgery. The one thing about teenagers is we recommend that bunion surgery is not done until growth plates are closed. And that is because the rate of bunions coming back if the growth plates are open is very high. And so we try to hold our patients off of surgery until, you know, on x-ray the growth plates are closed before doing it. Wow, that's an interesting point. He had another question here. Do you have any suggestions for helping to develop strength to avoid sprained ankles when walking on uneven surfaces? So that's a great question. Um, Really, it's physical therapy, physical therapy, physical therapy. It's about strengthening um, the muscles around the ankle. So there are really two stabilizers to the ankle. The first is the ligament, and a ligament is bone to bone. And so when somebody has a typical ankle sprain, then they will have an injury to that ligament. 
The other thing that helps stabilize the ankle is the tendon. So there's a tendon that runs close by that helps evert the foot. So if you're, for example, if you're walking or hiking something uneven and you step on a root, your body reacts by first the ligament is holding the ankle steady, but that tendon fires in order to keep you upright. So what happens often is that if you have an ankle injury and you stretch out the ligament, all the things we're doing in physical therapy is working on strengthening that tendon so it can compensate for it. So it's really a matter of strengthening the muscles around the ankle to help support it. Now, that being said, 10% of the time with a grade three ankle sprain, we are doing surgery to help um, re- to help tighten up those ligaments. So not everybody will respond to physical therapy. Um, fortunately, 90% of the time they do, um, but there are times that they will require surgery in order to help stabilize them. Lauren, we're out of time. I mean, thank you so much for your time today. Um, obviously, this is a, a topic of great interest for our listeners, um, and we didn't even get to everything we wanted to talk about, so we'll have to get you back on soon. And thank you for everything you do for our patients and for the academic endeavors and training young physicians at the University of Connecticut. Thanks for having me. This is great. It's great to have you. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer, Kevin Kors, has been on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, next week, I will be on the road. And as many people know, I will be working with the New York Yankees. So with that, uh, we will have some new programs, updated interviews uh, coming to you while I'm away. And hopefully be able to do some live shows while uh, away. Uh, as always, we're taking your questions at info at alessimd.com. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast. Just download it at odyssey.com. Next up on WTIC is Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.